Architecture doesn't exist in a vacuum and neither should you. Whether it's a design critique or understanding how design connects to a larger world, gaining insight is invaluable for architecture students. Well, actually, all students in general. In these interview sessions, guests from professors to professionals and everyone in between will share their experiences and thoughts on design and the built environment. All right, and today's professorial guest that we've got is Professor June Komisar. You might remember her from courses such as First Year Studio, and if you weren't lucky enough to have her then, well, guess what? We got her today. So, June, welcome to the show today. It's great to be here. All right, so I know it's not the ideal condition, but um, you know we're going to touch on your whole fun experience uh, coming back and being quarantined, but... Um, just for those of you guys that don't know, June, can you describe, well, can you outline just, you know, who you are, what you teach, and, you know, where, what's your background? Well, I was originally a U.S. Uh, citizen, uh, an American. I, I still am, but now I'm dual. So I grew up in Connecticut, and I went to Yale for architecture and practiced for 15 years or so before I went back to get a Ph.D. so I could teach. And so uh, I so teach just, history sorry, and theory courses. June, just yeah. a little bit for specifics, because I think a yeah. lot of kids want those details because some students um, did their, are going to do their undergrad, say with us, and then do their grad at Yale. Like we've had that happen. So, I mean, could you just elaborate a little bit more? Give us more details on you. Okay. So I always wanted to, well, not necessarily to be an architect, but to help cities that were in decline. I saw decrepit buildings and empty lots, and I thought, oh, if I were rich, I could fix this up. And then I thought, no, I don't have to be rich. I could be an architect. <laughs> and that was great. So um, I first went to art school and got a bachelor's in fine arts, and then I went to uh, Yale for my master's. And Yale has... Um, two types of masters, one for people who don't have a previous um, architectural background and, and another master for people who do. And so sometimes if you apply from Ryerson, you might get slightly advanced status, but maybe not. It depends. Uh, I think so, so far we've been on a pretty good run for getting advanced status with the yeah. folks. Yeah, so that's yeah. good. So that's really good. So, um, so, I got my degree from Yale and I went to Boston and practiced mostly in Boston, a little bit in Hartford. And the favorite things that I, the favorite projects that I worked on were historic preservation and also prefab housing. I, I thought those were really, really interesting. Actually, June, can you tell us, I mean, if you don't mind telling us what drove you to Boston, which firm exactly were you working with? Oh, well, uh, Boston was really the place to be if you were an architect. Well, New York as well, but um, Boston was more my speed. I worked for Shepley, Bullfinch, Richardson, and Abbott, which we called um, um, Abbott and Costello. And uh, uh, That's an old, old uh, comedy duo for those of you guys that are uh, millennials and younger. Well, they should actually, they have a little free time now. They should look up Abbott and Costello on YouTube. They're hilarious and it's all free. So... The, I think that would amuse you a little bit. Anyway, so Shepley, Bullfinch, Abbott, and Costello, which did a lot of um, sort of uh, neoclassical flavored large-scale buildings like libraries and um, additions to hospitals and uh, dormitories and uh, large institutional buildings. 
I work okay. for other firms as well. Um, but uh, in the Boston area as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and you know what, just for our listeners, I, I think it's important to uh, point out that you see, do you know to hate it when the kids start typecasting us all the time? So here's the problem. They always typecast me as the angry guy or the prop that teaches computers or something like that. But I think that similarly, uh, I think they'd be good to know that you have um, a bit of a computer flair as well from your professional life. Well, I did. I'm a little rusty, actually, uh, but yes. Um, and um, Listen, let's, let's not be modest here. She was the CAD maven back in the day uh, when CAD was like the thing that was replacing all those drafts people. So just let, let, let's call a spade a spade now. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't uh, the, um, the, the CAD manager for the office, but I did learn uh, um, how to... Um, to, to alter programs. And in, in, in the day, you had to learn computer languages to um, modify programs to uh, fit with the, the, the software that your engineers used, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it wasn't all completely compatible. So you had to make little tweaks in your software to make it compatible with their software. It, it was kind of kludgy. Yeah, so just for reference, anyone that's got um, Grasshopper questions and scripting issues or no, Python no, no, matters, no, no, no. go and ask. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. No, yeah no, just ask June. If not, ask Baruch. Um, no, anyway. no, I really, actually, I mean, I really was a CAD guru, but I, I learned all that stuff in a really stupid way. Like when I was learning Lisp, mm-hmm. uh, Lisp is a piece of software. Uh, subroutines within AutoCAD uh, yeah. back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when I was learning Lisp, instead of using a manual, what I did was take the scripts that we had and put a, a, a typo at each spot. And so it would come up with an error message, which I would write down because the error message would tell me what was going on in that part of the script. And I kept moving that typo throughout the script that I was trying to de- de- decipher. Holy crap, man. Yeah. And that that, that, that way force, I man. learned... Yeah, but that way I learned every piece of every script that I needed to be able to modify. So it was very tailored to my needs. Um, it's either, sort of stupid, some... but it was, it was actually lots of fun. So that's how I learned um, Lisp. Um, okay, that, that's, that's the it's next not, level. Not recommended. Yeah, not a say. recommended way of learning Lisp. Mind you, I'll tell you right now, that is, some, that is the way some students learn how to use Revit right now. So I'm just, have you seen some of those projects, man? Anyways, um, sorry. So, so let's just go through this. So you, you did your Boston stint. And then were you teaching in Boston? Or what led you to teaching at, uh, yes. at Ryerson? Well, there is a school called um, the, the Boston Architectural College, which was at that time called the Boston Architectural Center, which was an evening program for undergraduate architects at the time. Now they have master's programs. And I started teaching there one course a semester. Um, It's basically volunteer work. You get paid, but you basically get paid enough to uh, pay for your car fare and your dinner Mm -hmm. when you you grab a sandwich on the way between work and teaching. And I liked that more than I liked Practicing architecture. So, so what were you teaching? I thought I'd were you, flip. Were you doing the uh, theory studio. stuff then? No. Oh, studio. I okay. Studio. Well, I taught one theory course that was tied to studio, and they had to take both at the same time. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I just taught studio. And I, um, they, they do studios in teams of two. So I always had a partner, and 
we had smallish classes, so it was 16 students and, and two teachers, which is a very nice ratio. Okay. And we met twice a week, and uh, it was great. I did that for four years, and that's when I decided, well, um, I, I really need to change my life, and slowly began to realize I had to get a PhD. Hmm. And then, and then that's, but then when you were doing your PhD, I'm assuming you had some teaching uh, load as well. Yes, yes. And at that time I was very, um, I was very CAD oriented. And so when I went uh, to uh, the University of Michigan for my PhD and I said I was going to have a teaching fellowship, I assumed that I would be teaching CAD. And so I walked there and they said, no, you're going to be teaching history theory. And I looked at them and I said, but I don't know anything about history theory. That's why I'm here. And they, <laughs> and they said, well, you are going to be a, a history theory teaching assistant. So um, I had to get up to speed uh, very fast. So when you were, I mean, uh, just put things in perspective, because I think it might be worth talking about. Um, not only what your PhD was, but what were those courses that you were teaching? I mean, like, it'd be one thing if you were interested in talking about, like, you know, the Renaissance on or, you know, and then you were familiar with it as opposed to like, being dumped and told, hey, you got to teach ancient feudal Japanese architecture. Like, I mean, there's, there's differences there. Well, um, they have a two semester survey history course that doesn't have as much theory in it as ours. We have three semesters of, of the survey course with some theory in it, but theirs is two semesters. And that's what I was a, a teaching assistant on for two years. Mm -hmm. uh, so in the fall, it goes up to the Renaissance and in the winter, it goes to all the way from the end of the Renaissance to modern. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and unlike uh, Ryerson, you have, um, well, we used to have that at Ryerson. They have um, these tutorials of about 25 students each, and I taught the tutorials, That's and then graded papers and things like that. So that's uh, what I did there. And then... Um, you became a doctor? And, no, and... no, no. Then I got a better gig teaching oh. engineering, teaching first-year engineering. Uh, teaching them what? Oh, basic first-year engineering things. Uh, oh, like statics and deflections and deformations, materials yeah, and methods. Yeah, and all, okay. yeah, but also how so problem solving, basic problem solving. Mm -hmm. They had to take something apart and figure out what it was, and then put it back together again and how it worked. Like hmm. they had to take apart a coffee maker and figure out how it actually made coffee, and you know, various basic engineering things, and then and then uh, make modifications. So it was really a fun course and I taught that for a year. See, I'm learning everything like in doing these shows I'm finding I'm learning more and more from like just listening to what you guys have done like I, I, I didn't know that but ultimately what what brought you to become a prof here I mean I, I, I would assume that it's not just simply a full-time teaching gig but I mean it was a lifestyle choice you went from America to the great white north. Oh well I didn't do it straight well, oh. for one thing, I started out, I eased from, I was a Boston person, right? So I had to, I, I went into shock when I moved to the Midwest. Oh my God, I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan, right? Yeah. <laughs> that, was the, that was the biggest shock of all. Mm -hmm. And then um, I met my future husband there and uh, Joe, 
And Joe got a fellowship um, in England, so we decided to get married and move to England for a year. So while I was finishing my dissertation, I was in Birmingham, England, hmm. teaching architecture and uh, in the Birmingham's uh, City University's um, architecture program. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, and I was finishing my dissertation, and that was so much fun. Hmm. It was really great. And we wanted to stay in England because we loved it so much, but um, it was hard to get a full-time gig there. So um, I started interviewing, and I didn't want to go back to the U.S. at all because we couldn't stand George Bush. Uh, uh, one or looking two. Back to, uh, looking back to, looking back because of the war, which I was very much against. I was, I was um, very political at the time. Okay, so just, just, just to make sure, it's George Bush W, and this was George the, uh, uh, the Afghan situation uh, post-September 11th? Uh, yeah, the, his war in uh, Iraq, which uh, really okay, got it, got was it. very upsetting. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. for the, just as a little off the record side, you don't mind me saying, um, yeah, so don't go traveling with June because uh, the U.S. government watches her because she sends president's uh, dead baby photos. Just yeah, put that one out there. That's right. Yes, yes, I told you that. Yes, so I was cutting um, uh, pictures of children that uh, the U.S. killed uh, in bombing raids. And I was taking those pictures out of the British newspapers because the American newspapers were not showing this stuff. And I was mailing them to the president. Just as an aside, um, I, I would really hate to think what you've done to your ex-boyfriends. I'm just, just, what do you send those people? But anyways, I digress. Uh, let, let's <laughs> well, yes, focus and, on, on your career, on your career path to Ryerson. Yes. Let's so, send babies more Ryerson. So both my, uh, my husband and I have family in the U.S. So we also wanted to be close to them, but not in the U.S. So when this job uh, possibility at uh, Ryerson turned up, we thought, oh my God, we could live close to the U.S., but not in the U.S., and wouldn't that be wonderful? And so I applied. And that, that was when Michael Miller or George Capellas? George Capellas was, was chair, chair. Okay. and it was the same year that Colin uh, was hired and Mark Gorgolevsky. Yep, that's when they were assembling the Avengers, so to speak. So we were the four uh, Avengers. There's a fourth... Um, faculty member that none of these students would know who was Ian. Who uh, I think they might, some of the fourth years, and, and certainly some of our grad audience might, might remember him. Uh, yeah. He used to teach the uh, urban, uh, the PLX course uh, that, that's typically found in third year. Yes. In any event, so you got in and let's, okay, so we got the history, but now let's talk June. What do you teach and how? How do you teach, right? How do I teach? Yeah, I mean, like, let's, let, I think you know that different profs have different approaches to teaching, but let's, let's talk, talk about the easy ones first, right? So what is it that you teach? Well, I teach design studio. I enjoy teaching fourth year design studio and, um, and first year introductory design studio. And I really think that drawing is an important part of the design process and model building is an even more important part of the design process. And that is really hard to teach because I think students have started to, in high school, go completely digital and don't really understand the hand-mind coordination, the eye-hand-mind coordination of drawing and model building. That's mm -hmm. really important. So I try 
to in no matter what course I'm teaching have students uh, um, learn in that way. So I mean, you, you've seen, and I don't want to be dating you here, but you've you've been teaching for a while, and yeah. you've seen a rapid. I, I would argue, like I mean, even within my own time at Ryerson, I've seen a rapid shift um, for students' proclivity penchants for uh, computer usage. And and we, I've been asked, and I've done a couple of judging uh, exercises for like high school Revit competitions, right? Uh, so we we know that, that stuff's there. What what is it about the the hand models, hand uh, drawing that that really you know, helps in architect design. I mean, well, I'm not a, a I'm not a psychologist, so I can't answer that you're, question. But you're an architecture prof. Way, but I think that there's an immediacy um, that you don't get on a computer, and also um, a um, if you do it right, you can get the permission from yourself to change something. Mm. Whereas when you do something on the computer, it looks done. Mm. It looks finished and done and polished. And you, you tend not to go through as many iterations. And it's the changes, it's the iterations, it's the editing and, f and finessing your idea that makes it better. Okay. So, I mean, that's, that's, I guess you see that from the bookends of studio. You're talking about first year studio all the way to uh, fourth year option studios. And, and, and of course, grad, grad school. You've done grad, you've done grad studio. Like Actually, do you remember um, last year in, well, you did it I with, guess it's joint. in fall. You did a joint, yeah. Yeah, well, last fall, the exhibit from the previous year, do you remember all those beautiful models that were in there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, some of those models are because I forced the students to do models and they thanked me afterwards. Mm, they said, yeah. yeah, it really made a huge difference. And then they said, why didn't I start model building earlier? It's oh my God. We didn't listen to June back in the day. Now we're suffering now in grad school. Now I have to reveal my bias here. I mean, when I was an art major as an undergrad, remember I said that at the beginning, mm -hmm. I was a sculpture major. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so I, that, I do have this inherent bias for three-dimensional stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would also say um, you also have a bias or, or um, a tendency to talk about, say, uh, urban agriculture. I think this is a good segue into some of the research stuff that you do. Yeah, well, I have two, two different hats in my research. One is um, Brazilian architecture and the other one is um, urban agriculture, designing for urban agriculture. And I teach a course called The Productive City that is a fourth year elective. I don't teach it every year, but I've also taught it as a, a fourth year design studio. Mm -hmm. And that's really fun. Mark Orgolevsky and Joe Nasser, who is my husband, and I wrote a book called Carrot City that's in our library. If the library ever reopens, you'll yeah, be able will. to see it. And But also it has been um, illegally uh, scanned and you can torrent it. See, that's a bit of a mark of pride for props. It's like, yeah, you know what? I, I might only hold sold like 60 copies last year, but man, it's like a billion copies that are circulated online. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're taking a little bit of pride in that one. Well, you know, we warned them. We, it was designed actually to be an ebook. So the, the graphic design was, was designed that way. And then it's a little complicated, but the publisher changed and then they decided not to do the ebook. Mm. And so um, we said, if you don't do an ebook, it's going to happen anyway. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, but I'm I'm glad that it got circulated. But I think this is a one in one instance where you can actually just plug your fourth year studio or how you would dispense with the urban agriculture elective. I mean, you got you got a, a bit of time right now. Tell us why a student should would take this course. Well, for one thing, they get to do a lot of field trips. We learn about all these great facilities all over Toronto, and it's really a model for North America. We have the Witchwood Barns, which um, um, has a large greenhouse that was added. The Witchwood Barns are an adaptive reuse slash historic preservation project um, where our urban agriculture is going on in a really big way. And mm -hmm. so we, we do a tour of that. We do a tour of Brickworks, which also has all kinds of urban agriculture in it. And um, the, 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 the course is not only about growing food, but food distribution. So we go to St. Lawrence Market and we look at how the farmers distribute the food and what a wonderful market building looks like and how it operates. So even though it is not the coolest architectural expression of, of food distribution, like the, some of the European ones that won all kinds of design awards. Um, it's, it's a beautiful old building that's historically significant and we, we go there. So, so that, that, that's one of the fun things about the course. And mm -hmm. the other thing that's really interesting is that I think that a crisis like the one we're in now shows how important food is to our daily lives. We happen to eat food at least three times a day. And what happens when the distribution networks uh, break down? Yeah. If they yeah. break down, then you have to make sure that local food is built into your entire design uh, process for the uh, building for the neighborhood and for at the city level and the regional level. Yeah, and I think talk that, about that. Th this is something that I think a lot of students are becoming more inherently aware of. Like we, we talk about, uh, you know, obviously, uh, thank you, Greta, for the climate change memo, but we've also got stuff about, um, you know, the water security um, and all these other issues. And I think food security is coming out as, as a big one specifically pertaining to a lot of architectural work. Um, and I think it's also worth mentioning, I, I think you're a little bit modest again on that because I, I think that research that you've been doing, it's not just localized. I think that uh, you wanna you know, toot your horn about like how far and wide the outreach of Carrot City has gone beyond illegal downloads. I mean, talk about- Well, you know, there's a big uh, website yeah. that they can go to, the web is um, called Carrot City. Well, I was going and, to say, how about Thailand and France? Oh, well, Remember, yeah, come yes, on. We, we had a huge exhibit that went to um, uh, Habitat 3 in South America and uh, went to Th Thailand and went to Madagascar and, and Paris. It was um, um, in front of the big um, city hall in Paris, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the big plaza there was mm -hmm. outside there and in one of the big parks called Parc Bercy um, outside there for two seasons. And where else? Oh, it was in Cambridge at, uh, at Waterloo. No, 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 hey, look, why, why It was at Ryerson. It was, where else? New York at, uh, in, at the New School, right there on Broadway. Very yeah. exciting. They have a huge gallery there, and yeah. that was so exciting. And don't forget the royal family in Thailand. Come on. Well, 
Yes, a minor, a minor royal was. See, do I have to put all the, like, do I have to give all the props props? Like, you guys really do not know how to talk about the good stuff you guys have done. It's, it's weird. I'm, I'm doing all these interviews with all you guys. And it's well, like, the best yeah, well. thing, the best thing about going to Thailand was we did a side trip to Cambodia. And I always wanted to go to Cambodia. And we went to Angkor uh, Wat yeah. and, uh, and the other uh, temples in uh, Siem Reap. Oh, mm -hmm. my God. Oh, it is astonishing. And if you can get there, I would say go there. Hmm. It's totally worth it. So I think now that we covered the kind of range of your history, your teaching, I, you know what, I think it still is worth mentioning. You do teach history theory. And, and I, I think do. That, that never gets enough credit. And, and this is an opportunity uh, for you to speak because I've been getting a couple of questions and, and I didn't want to ask verbatim the questions that some of the students had sent me uh, knowing that I'd be talking to you. Um, but I think that one sentiment that I'm getting is that the question is, you know what, we take these history courses and I'm saying, no, it's a history and theory course. And they, and they go, no, it's not. It's a history course. And then I ask them, well, don't you know any theory? And you ask them, give me an architectural theory. And they're at a loss. So I think we got to ask ourselves, you know, June, what do you got to do to tell the kids, especially the younger ones that are really just starting to get their feet wet in this? How do you tell them that history theory is a worthwhile endeavor? It's not just about dead white architects, right? It's about what? Well, depending on how you teach it, it could be about dead white architects, but I try dead not to. Dead white male architects, sorry. Yes, yes. I try not to talk about it in that way. Um, I think that you don't realize that the world around you um, is an architectural vocabulary that you have absorbed. And by learning about the background of it from ancient to modern, you learn about the materials that they use and why they use them and the building types that we have and why we have those building types and how architecture and society are linked together. Because we're not just building, we're building in a context. And I think that the theory is basically the context. So the, 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 the survey course is called Ideas, Technologies, and Precedents. And so I always make sure that the students realize what, what ideas are happening at the same time. Like what discoveries are they, mm -hmm. are they making in science? Uh, where are they traveling? What were the ideas at the time? Like, um, for instance, um, um, existentialism or uh, phenomenology or further back um, you know there, there's there's all kinds of things that go hand in hand with the architecture that is being built at that time yeah and I think it's got to be more than just about the past I think that the critical thing is to talk about how it impacts and the implications on the future because I mean the past unfortunately dies really quickly like uh, there was a recent survey that said uh, and I, I raise it to my students in the studio all the time that like a significant portion of the uh, student population in America and, I'm, and I'm, I guess it kind of have some analogies to or relevance to the Canadian audience but a significant portion of the American student body did not know what the Holocaust was, right? So to, to dwell on the past is, is one thing, but I'd like to think that the IDT or the Ideas, Technolo or, uh, Ideas Technologies and Precedents, ID, um, those okay. courses are talking about the way we look at architecture as a vehicle for the future, not just simply dwelling on the past, correct? Well, yes. And um, the, the, 
the very basics of ancient architecture um, are very important for now, particularly going into the future where we're trying to build more sustainably because they used local materials mm -hmm. and they tried to figure out what local materials could do. They didn't um, use, uh, they didn't use very much extractive technologies, you know, so they, they weren't extracting from the, the land. They were not using plastics. They, uh, their only source of heat was often the, the body heat that was trapped within the thickness of the walls. They had to use um, um, techniques for ventilation that were uh, natural, that heat rises, so they mm -hmm. designed for that. Um, and so looking at the way ancient people figured out how to make sustainable architecture can really, really help us figure out how to make sustainable architecture in the future. I'm glad you took the sustainability skew because, I, and, and listen, I promised myself I wouldn't do this, but I got to do it now because here's a side note, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to get June jumping, just talk about America. So I'm going to ask you, and you, you just a, a simple, simple question. Okay. You don't have to go into diatribe on this one because I, I don't know how much download bandwidth we're going to be killing on this one. Um, but June, what's your response to Donald Trump's administration on their uh, declaration on the policy for architecture? And for those of you guys that aren't quite too familiar, long story short, he wants um, any federal architecture buildings to, uh, of a certain budget and size uh, to look like neoclassical architecture. So I'll did throw that we, to you. Did, did we actually talk about this together? Because I've talked about this with a few people, but I don't think I mentioned it to you. Uh, you've been on sabbatical for a while, so I, I think we have not talked about this one. So go to I, town, June. I blew a gasket, actually. <laughs> and actually, I thought it was, it was sort of funny and naive. And so I looked at the names of the people, the, peop the people behind this bill, and they're this, um, this right-wing crackpot bunch of people who were mostly not even architects, who don't even realize... Um, the the breadth of modern architecture that um, creates um, beautiful stately buildings. I think that's what they really want: beautiful mm -hmm. stately buildings. Um, but to build a neoclassical building now and make it look authentic would mean to quarry stone. Would mean to not um, uh, think about sustainable. Um, practices mm -hmm. would um, would also cut out almost the entire architecture profession from being able to to um, to take these projects on because they don't have the particular training to create neoclassical buildings. I I I it's 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 from every angle it's so wrong-headed and and why neoclassical? That's kind of a very interesting thing. It was. If that declaration came out right in the middle of the research that I'm supposed to be doing, I'm doing a <laughs> paper on Vargas, who was a dictator in the 20th century in yeah. Brazil. I was going to say some right-wing leanings here. Yes, and how Vargas's, during Vargas's regime, they started both a push towards modernism and a push towards privileging the 18th century uh, historic preservation in Brazil hmm. and and tearing down 19th century and early 20th century buildings. Hmm. So I think that's really interesting. So there's this very interesting parallel because Vargas 
was a dictator who thought that particular kinds of architecture were a symbol of his dictatorship. And that's exactly what Trump is doing. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to pull the spear card down, but- uh, he, is, uh, he is acting like a dictator. And if you look at different dictators, for some reason, different dictators use different kinds of architecture as their symbolic architecture for their, their nation. For mm -hmm. instance, uh, Speer was um, the, the Nazi Reich. architect of the Third Reich, and he did this stripped down classicism, you could call it neoclassicism, mm -hmm. very stripped down, very um, uh, in, in, informed by the modern uh, architecture around him, but nonetheless, neoclassical in so so just just for the audience because we have some kids that are listening that aren't familiar all too well um i think look that up if you, spear yeah, yeah look at yeah if you look up spear and the third reich architecture you'll see um basically any of the propaganda videos the backdrops the olympic games all those things uh it's it's the architect was spear and uh it's it's very much about the superman kind of uh situation so it's interesting that architecture is being used um, in this way. Now, if, if Trump doesn't get reelected, we won't see any of that architecture because he doesn't have much time left, right? So it's not going to happen. But, uh, uh, his, but at, his approval rings like 50-50 now. I'm just saying <laughs> that's uh, kind of scary. He waits till 100,000 people die and, list, you know, it's like... Okay, okay. That, that, I'm, that, that I'm got hoping, dark real fast there, June. <laughs> no, I'm hoping... He, I'm hope, well, I... They, the projections are that it'll be about 200,000 people die in the U.S. I mean, we're not talking small change here. It's really yeah. uh, terrifying. Anyway, so, 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 so anyway, Vargas is a really interesting guy. He was a dictator in Brazil for a really long time. And I thought, why is he looking at both modernism and the 18th century as um, vehicles to express his regime. Mm -hmm. And that is a cool thing. And so I stumbled upon Marinetti. For those of you who've taken uh, 406, you will know that Marinetti was uh, one of the top futurists in Italy. Mm -hmm. And he was also a pretty horrible guy. He was such a sexist. Oh my God. Anyway, so Marinetti a was a poet, but he was the worst. If you look at his manifesto, he liked he enjoyed war and he hated women and I don't know how his wife could stand him, but anyway. So Marinetti went on this speaking tour of Brazil and a few other places in South America, um, but mostly um, in uh, Sao Paulo and Rio and really kind of fired up the literati and the glitterati uh, to really, um, be futurists um, in their yeah. own special Brazilian way. So, yeah, and there's just, that. Uh, if I recall properly, just like all fascist dictators, uh, he didn't end so well. Uh, he did he commit suicide? Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. he did. Oh, we're getting dark again here. Ooh. Oh, okay. Yes. But I didn't say two hundred thousand. Okay, okay, fine, fine. So, so, okay, fine, fine. We'll, we'll, we'll get to a better place. So, not sorry. Marinetti. You're talking about Vargas. No, no, no Vargas. Yeah, 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 yeah. Vargas yeah. committed suicide yeah. in 1954, I think. Guess who's an architectural historian? <laughs> okay. Um, so, 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 okay. Let's just okay. Let's just stop for a sec. Well, well, okay. Let's get out of the darkness for a sec, and let's talk about train wrecks. Um, so. Here's a basic question I asked you earlier to prepare. And, and if we have to, we'll get the kids to Google up the images of what this may or may be. But the question I asked you, and I'm asking all the profs, um, basically, uh, what's the worst building 
Um, and what, what can we learn from it? Like, and tell me, why is it the worst building to you? Well, uh, there's so many wonderful uh, no, no, buildings. No, no, no. You pick. I picked, I picked uh, to go back to the U.S. again. I picked the Trump Tower in New York City, not because it's so terrible. It's not a great building, but it, the way it was built is it was built on the site of Bonwit Teller that had beautiful Art Deco sculptures and ornamentation. I mean, absolutely gorgeous. And he wanted, he bought the site and he was going to just tear it down, not even save the facades or anything. Mm -hmm. And so the Metropolitan Museum of Art and some of the art dealers that were, had galleries across the street and a bunch of people rallied together to save the facade and the sculptures and the Art Deco details of the Bonwit Teller building. And they were going to be on display at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And it was this wonderful win-win situation. And Trump couldn't wait 24 hours to have them rescue that facade. And he just, in the middle of the night with um, underpaid, um, imported labor who didn't really know what they, they, they were committing, mm -hmm. just ripped it down, just destroyed it. So it's, it's less the actual architecture as it is the person, the, the, the ways that- It's not the person, it's, it's the fact that this building uh, was, was- unscrupulously- Was you know, committing a crime. That is an architectural crime. Yeah. I, 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 it's not I a great building either. It's a terrible building, but it's kind of an interesting building in that it has. It's very uh, 80s, isn't it? It's like it, well, it's it, very 80s, it, but it has a it has it has a very interesting way of resolving the corner because yeah. then you have it, all these different uh, triangulation facets. Like it, it, it yeah. steps down. Like so. So for those of you guys that uh, don't know the Trump Tower, aside from the fact that it's protected by a lot of uh, what's it dump trucks full of sand still, um, the, the 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 corner that June's referring to is that it looks like a Minecraft glass tower, right? Yeah, so yeah. imagine if like little blocks of glass were to make up that uh, lower, as you get closer to the podium, that's what the building looks like. You guys can Google it up and you can understand why it looks um, kind of very 80s. I, I'd say it is a very 80s-ish kind of office tower building. Yeah, I think it was under construction in around 79 to 81 or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, around that time. Yeah, so that's that's my favorite building to hate right now. Gee, that and that's that's June on a hate note. Gee, she still sounds so perky. Well, I'm trying to I mean, people are listening to this and trying to stay upbeat and they're 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 eating um, I don't know, Rice Krispies for the third day in a row because they can't go out and buy anything more interesting. So <laughs> I feel very sorry for everybody. And uh, I think we'll have a lot more fun when we can all get together again. Yeah, see, see I just wanted to put it out there. Uh, you missed out uh, the industry karaoke night we had um, uh, just uh, right before the coronavirus really hit. Uh, so like at the beginning of March, we had a karaoke night and uh, we had industry guys and man, it was, it was packed. So we're going to have a faculty one at some point. Um, I only managed to blackmail two or three profs. Do I get to out, pick so. my own song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get to kind of pick your own song. It depends on the Kind team. of yeah. pick my own song? We'll, we'll get to that later. That's another episode. Okay. <laughs> Um, in any event, I, I, I know we're running long on this one, but uh, the last question I really have for you, June, is, is there anything that you'd want the students to really know um, about you? Uh, because let's be honest here, a lot of students think that profs, we're really smart and, you know, we know everything about everything. We're not. Far from no, no, right? no. And, and the thing is, uh, because we're so approachable, um, the idea is that the, the kids should 
at least hear from us um, to know that we're, we're good people and that we're real people. And I think this is an opportunity, especially at, in these times, uh, for you to express to the students, you know, uh, anything that they need to know about you so that they can feel that you're an approachable kind of prof. Um, well, they should realize that I learn more from them than they do from me and that they will learn more from each other than they do from any of us. Okay, that was very deep and uh, educational. But June, I, how about this? I was thinking more, how about this, June? Tell them the story about the monkey. Oh, not that one. No, oh, I will no? tell them. I will tell them something that's more, uh, more, more, more studio related. Um, so I was, I was teaching uh, in Brazil. I, I brought two studio groups to Brazil in summer studios, and that was really great. But the summer before that, uh, in preparation, I went with another Ryerson professor who was taking a bunch of nutrition students to Brazil. And since I know this uh, city, Ouro Preto, very well, I gave them a tour, a guided tour of Ouro Preto on the bus um, on the way back uh, before they were loading the bus to go back to their site city, which was Belo Horizonte. And they're all waiting in the bus for me. And I had run into the visitor center to just um, uh, use the washroom before mm -hmm. our two hour ride and uh, locked myself in the washroom. Wait, and how? how? It, the, the, I didn't notice there was a sign on the wall that said that the lock on the bathroom door was broken. Uh, so you couldn't get out whatsoever? I couldn't get out whatsoever. And they're like, waiting and they're waiting and I was stuck in the washroom and no one knew where I was. They looked in the bookstore. I wasn't there. They looked in the coffee shop. I wasn't there. And I'm just standing there thinking, okay, I am locked in the washroom. Wait, so it wasn't <laughs> like a regular stall. It was, it was like a, a stall. It was a very tall stall that I was locked in, really tall. So, so you I had to get someone to pull you up from the top or something? There was no one coming in, you know, how it is when you have an emergency, no one comes in. So no mm. one came into the ladies' room. And so, <laughs> and everyone's in the van waiting for me. And I'm thinking, okay, I have to get out of here. So this, you know, I'm, you know, middle-aged. So this middle-aged woman, me, um, crawled up the walls. Oh my God. Over the top. <laughs> and jump down. And, oh man. Yeah. Man, so so basically American Ninja Warrior skills uh, get powered up with June, man. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I was very, I was very, cause the, it was the too low to, I couldn't crawl under the stall. There wasn't enough room. So I crawled over the stall and then I appeared at the van and everyone was going, where were you? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. That was fun. So, uh, mental note, uh, field trips with uh, Professor Komisar, probably... I will take my cell phone with take her me. Phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was before I had a cell phone, actually. But I, all... I, and also, to be honest, we had one cell phone to share with us because it was Brazil and I didn't have a plan. Uh, see, all this time, I thought you always carried that burner phone with you just because you were doing like side gigs. Um, but well, I do apparently... have a burner phone for side gigs, actually. But now I have, a, I now have an iPhone 5. I'm like, really? Oh, she, she's, she's hit, I think she's in the 2010s now, guys. Uh, yeah, so... 5S, yeah. yeah, yeah really okay. like it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So that's today's episode. And I hope you guys enjoyed getting to know uh, Professor June Komisar a little bit more. Um, you know, she's, she's probably the most affable uh, approachable uh, student. That's why we have one of the reasons why we have, not just because of her knowledge, but 
I think she's one of the uh, better faces of the department to put to our incoming first years. So you're so sweet. No, yes. and that's why they put fun. me in the first year too, because I got to balance that out, man. You know, we're a great team. And, and thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. I've always wanted to be on a podcast. It's so exciting. Well, okay. Let's just, let, let's see if the, you know, FCC allows us to put this one on, but yes. Of course yes. they will. Okay. Of course All right. Yeah. All right. So with that, thank you very much, June and uh, take care kids. Bye.